Turn, if you would, to the 15th chapter of the book of Matthew. Yes, we are still in Matthew. My goal was to finish it this year. I started adding up lessons. It may not happen. Last week, we talked about what defiles a person. Remember, the Pharisees were complaining because Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands properly before they ate. And we discussed the fact that this wasn't about hygiene. This was about removing the sin that you might have come in contact with while you were wandering through the community. They had this very ritualistic washing pattern in order to cleanse themselves. And Jesus said, it's not what comes in that's going to spiritually defile you. It's rather what comes out from your heart. And there was some discussion about, well, don't you know that you just ticked off the Pharisees by saying this? And he said, well, whatever. As you're going to see in today's lesson and in the lessons to come, the conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes is going to become greater and greater. That's the inevitable consequence of the friction between the two of them. So, at the end of this discussion, we pick up in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. If you look in the map in the back of your Bible, you see these are on the coast. They are not in Israel proper. This is where the Gentiles lived. This is where those people lived who the good Jews didn't associate with. Probably he went there just to get away for a while. You're in the uh, Jewish area and you're being bombarded by the scribes and the Pharisees, as we'll see in just a moment, and he had to get away. So he goes away to a Gentile community. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, what did she know about Jesus? This is a Canaanite. This is not a Jewish person. These are the people that the Jews did not associate with. She comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, have mercy on me. She has no claim at all to Jesus. All she wants to ask for is mercy. That's the only thing. What is her need? Her daughter is demon-possessed. I don't know what she had heard. I don't know what had followed Jesus as he went into this area. I don't know, but she knew enough. She knew enough to know that this man could help her. And it was, a great, it was a great challenge on her part to go talk to a Jewish man about helping her with her need. So she comes and she says, help me, have mercy on me. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, what we're going to see here, at first glance, looks rather cruel. This woman comes up to Jesus, and he ignores her. He is just going to ignore her, and then he's going to insult her, 
on his way to, as you know, doing what she wants him to do. Why did he do that? Why did he just ignore her? I mean, Jesus continually responded to people who came to him with needs. The centurion comes and he addresses his need. People come with illnesses, blindness, this, that, the other, and he addresses their needs, yet this Canaanite woman comes and he ignores her. It seems at first glance to be rather cruel, but he's going to test her faith. There are scriptures that teach us that God will test our faith to prove that it is strong. Jesus is going to test her faith so he doesn't pay any attention to her. She's over here talking. He's sitting here looking at his disciples. And his disciples say, make her go away. Now, it is interesting to me. My first thought would have been what they want him to do is just tell her to go. Leave. I'm tired of listening to you. I'm not going to do it. Go away. But there are a lot of commentaries who believe that the disciples really wanted Jesus to do the miracle so she'd go away. Now, their motivation isn't that good. Their motivation is just to keep things quiet. I've told you in here before, you know, raising all my kids, there were times when I didn't care if they were in the room killing each other as long as they were quiet about it, as long as they didn't interrupt me. And that's what the disciples are saying. Do something. Either run her off or do what she asks so that she'll leave us alone. What does Jesus say? He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Was he? We know that he came to save all of us. We are the Gentile community, by the way, right? Most of us. We are the Gentile community. So what does it say? I only came for the lost sheep of Israel. Well, if you remember back several chapters, when Jesus told his disciples, he sent them out into the community, go to the nation of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the nation of Israel. Tell them about the kingdom Work the miracles to demonstrate that you are an authentic prophet preaching the gospel. That's your mission. It is very clear in the gospels, and when we get to the book of Romans, it's very clear that the message was first to the nation of Israel and then to the wider community. What we're going to see in today's lesson is the wider community. But he tells her, or he tells the disciples. We're not really clear who's listening to these words. The disciples say, get rid of her. And he says, but I'm not here. I'm here for the lost tribe of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. I do not recommend that you or I try this as a teaching technique. I just don't. But Jesus understands 
her heart. He understands the condition. He understands what's going on. And he says, it is not right for me to take what belongs to the children, the descendants of Abraham, and give it to dogs. Now, I just learned this week, this is kind of interesting, it was not uncommon for the Jewish community to refer to the Gentile community as dogs. At the time, dogs would have been wild animals. They are just vicious creatures out there. I remember some friends of ours in this church adopted a, a young lady from Africa. And as long as I knew the young lady, she was terrified of dogs. Because in her community, dogs were not pets. Dogs were wild animals that chewed things up. This word, though, right here that is translated dog is actually a different word than is normally translated dog. This word right here is actually the word for puppy, little dog. This is not the vicious one. So while he is using the Jewish terms of the Gentiles or dogs, he is softening it and he's saying, why should I give it to the little puppy? Why should I help you? Once again, he is testing her faith. She said, yes, Lord, even, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even the dogs get something to eat. Even they get something out of the meal. Then Jesus answered her, and here is the answer. O woman, great is your faith. Why was he doing this? To demonstrate, to who? To demonstrate the strength of her faith. What I find fascinating is in just a moment, when we're in the next chapter, he's going to chastise the disciples because of their little faith. Several times in the book of Matthew, we've already seen and we will continue to see that Jesus will look at the disciples and go, why is your faith so small? Yet, when the Roman centurion comes to Jesus, the pagan, Jesus says, I have not seen faith this great in all of Israel. This is a Canaanite woman I mean, we could have long discussions about racial profiling. This woman was outside of Jesus' sphere of interest if he's a good Jewish man. And he looks at her and he says, woman, you have great faith. What are we going to see in the life of Jesus? What we're going to see is Jesus is looking for faith whether it's in the Jewish community or the Gentile community. He is looking for faith wherever he can find it. And he looks at the woman and he says, you have great faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What do we learn from this? 
First off, we don't learn a teaching technique. Jesus can get away with this. You and I probably can't get away with insulting someone on our way to helping them. Why? Because we don't understand the heart like Jesus does. Now, there may be times, I have done this in classes before, where somebody says something and I say, well, why do you think that? And I kind of say it in this, you know, when I'm teaching my worldview class to high schoolers, I'll kind of go, why do you believe something like that? And I'll argue with them, but I don't ever insult anyone. So we don't learn that. But what we do learn is that life is going to test our faith. But persistence, being persistent in our faith, my tongue is stuck. Being persistent in our faith helps us helps us move the heart of God to accomplish what we desire. We see this in a number of parables in the scripture. Remember, you know, the judge doesn't want to give the woman any justice, and what does she do? She annoys him to death, and he finally gives up. Now, God is not a unrighteous judge. But Jesus and God love persistent faith. And that's what they were looking for, and that's what he found. The other lesson was for the disciples. The disciples saw that here, in this Canaanite woman, there was faith that was pleasing to God. What does that mean? you would be surprised where you might find faith if you just went looking for it. So, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered, wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, we've seen lots of healing, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the healing. But notice what it says at the very end. They glorified God because of the healing. As we go into the world, and we ought to go into the world, to do good deeds, to do acts of righteousness... What were we told in the Sermon on the Mount? Do your acts of righteousness so that people will see God and glorify Him. If we're doing things to glorify ourselves, we are not imitating Jesus. What He did, He did to bring glory to God. So, moving on to the next section. Verse 32, Then Jesus called His disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am willing, unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Does this sound familiar? A chapter ago, he was out in the boondocks after John the Baptist had been executed. He had gone to get away. The crowd came to him and he said, we need to feed them. And the disciples said, say what? We can't do this. This story is very similar to that one. 
to the point that some people think it's really the same story, but it's not. Why? Because in the next chapter, he's going to refer to both stories independent of each other. One of them he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, and in this one he's going to feed 4,000 men plus women and children. But there's another difference in this story that actually isn't apparent in the Matthew account. If you look in the account in Mark of this story, you see that he's progressed around the Sea of Galilee down to the southeast corner, the Decapolis, which actually is a Gentile community. Huh. Canaanite woman asked for help. Jesus gave it to her. He is now in the midst of a Gentile community, and he is healing the sick. Hmm. He's causing the mute to be able to speak. He's looking at the cripple. He's dealing with the problems, and the Gentiles are hungry. And Jesus turns to his disciples and said, feed them. Now, you've got to think about that for a moment. Good Jews didn't eat with good bad, whatever, Gentiles. They just didn't do that. And here Jesus is telling his disciples, feed them. Take care of the needs of these Gentile people. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, at this point, I've got to assume that they know what's going to happen. Maybe they're just so blind that they don't know. I just happen to think that they've got this gleam in their eye going, where do you want us to find the food, Jesus? Because they just saw it. Two chapters ago. They've got to understand what's going to happen. They asked Jesus in this desolate place, where are we going to find the food? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went over to the region of Magadan. Well, we had a long discussion about Jesus feeding the 5,000. We will not have a long discussion about this. Remember my discussion about the laws of physics and where did these atoms come from and all of that stuff? The weird things that I think about while I'm reading this. (laughs) Suffice it to say, suffice it to say, He was able to work the miracle that he had worked before, even in the Gentile community. And he fed them, and he fed them all. So, that finishes last week's lesson. (laughs) On to this week's lesson. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. (sighs) If you go back to chapter 12 you will see this exact event almost repeated. 
except this one, he has less patience with them. They come to him and they say, show us a sign. Now it is interesting, just at the beginning, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him. They want to test him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. They really did. The Sadducees were the, I don't know, the educated elite of the community. They may or may not have believed in the supernatural world. They didn't believe necessarily in the resurrection of the dead. They were very nebulous about their religious beliefs. But they were the guys in charge, religiously. The Pharisees were the holiness movement, okay? We're going to have a detailed set of rules. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. If you don't wash your hands properly before you eat, you're going to be in trouble. We know all about the Pharisees. These two groups hated each other. If you remember over later when Paul is being accused of crimes against humanity, he pits these two groups against each other. He's a good Pharisee, or he was until he met Jesus. And he starts talking about the resurrection of the dead because he knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees will fight to the death over this. But collectively, they knew that Jesus was a problem. I don't care if you're a Pharisee and Jesus is ignoring your rules or you're a Sadducee and you're worried that Jesus is going to bring the Romans down on you and you're going to lose your position of power. Collectively, they know Jesus is the bad guy. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend or something like that. So for a moment, they're going to work together. And they come and they ask for a sign. Why did they do this? Did they want to believe? I'm, Jesus, I am this close to believing in what you're saying. All I need is one more sign. One more, I don't know, lightning storm. Moses up on the mountain, the cloud, the fire, something and I'll believe it. And then I'm yours. No. It says they were testing him. Either A, he was going to do a sign, a miracle of some sort, in which case they would have blamed it on the devil. We've already seen that happen. Or second, he wasn't going to do one, and they were going to say, ha, see, he can't do it. But Jesus is not going to be their puppet. He is not going to let them pull a string and he go, yes, sir, yes, sir, whatever you want. Now, this to me is interesting because he could have done any sign imaginable. But you know what this reminds me of? Jesus is baptized. He goes into the wilderness, fast for 40 days. The devil shows up and says, hey, Work a miracle. You know, there's a rock, turn it into bread. Now, you and I couldn't do that. Jesus just fed 4,000 people. It would have been no problem for Jesus to turn that rock into bread. And there's nothing morally wrong with feeding yourself. So why didn't he do it? Because he wasn't going to do anything outside the will of the Father. They wanted a sign, 
And Jesus says, no. No. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. I do have a question here. You know, red sky in morning, sailor take warning, red sky at night, sailor delight. Is that even true? I don't know. I've heard it all my life. You see it in movies. But what you do know, that if you lived in an agrarian society, you begin to see the changes in the seasons. You begin to see the changes of the weather before it really happens. You learn to be able to understand the environment in which you live. You know, take the obvious ones. The leaves start to fall off the trees, you know fall is coming, right? The little green buds start to appear, you know spring is here. Football season starts and you know it's the middle of summer. <laughs> you learn to understand the signs to tell you what's going to come. And Jesus said, y'all are pretty good at that. You've spent your life trying to understand the future based on what's happening right now. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. You understand what you're interested in understanding, but you don't understand at all what God is doing right now. You do not understand the times in which you live. He's talking right here to the most educated religious people in the community. They're the ones who should have known. They should have been able to understand the book of Isaiah. They should have been able to interpret all of those prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. And they were oblivious. They were spiritually blind. Why were they spiritually blind? Because they were interpreting everything on the basis of how it affected their influence, their power, their position, their status in society. And Jesus was threatening all of that. They did not understand because they didn't want to understand. Now, we couldn't possibly be like that today, could we? We couldn't possibly be asking for a sign when the signs are clear enough if we wanted to understand them. There is an interesting passage over in First uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse uh, 32. It, it's going through the list of all the different uh, tribes of Israel. And it says, of Ishkar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. What does it say about the tribe of Ishkar? They understood the times, they knew what Israel ought to do. How does that compare to the scribes, I mean, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? 
They were not interested in what Israel ought to do. What did the Sadducees want? They wanted to get along with the Romans because they were the ones in charge. The Romans were in charge. They allowed the Sadducees to be in charge of the Jewish communities. Anything that threatened that, it's got to be... What did the Pharisees want? They wanted to feel that they were righteous because they kept their list. If I keep my list, I'm righteous. What does Jesus say? It's the condition of your heart. They're threatening. They did not understand because they didn't want to understand. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, so he left them and departed. An evil and adulterous generation. What does evil mean? Well, the easiest answer is what it doesn't mean. Evil would be the opposite of righteous. What is righteousness? Right standing before God, doing what God would have them to do. Here you have the Pharisees who are spending their lives doing what they interpret God as wanting them to do. And Jesus is saying, you're just whitewashed tombs. You are evil. You are not right before God. Evil and adulterous. Now that's interesting because my first thought is, of all the sins that you wanted to point at, why did you point at adultery? Is he accusing them of having improper sexual relations with people with whom they are not married? I'm sure some of them probably were, but no, that's not what he's talking about. Go back to the prophets in the Old Testament. And what is the image? The image is God, the husband, and the covenant people, Israel, as the bride, and the covenant people, Israel, are going chasing after other gods, other women. They are an adulterous generation. We're not talking sexual relations here, although, by the way, we could. What we're talking about are people chasing after other gods. And you go, wait a minute. We're the Pharisees. We know more about God than anyone else in this community. And you're accusing us of chasing after? Yes, that's exactly what he's doing. What are the gods they're chasing? Themselves? Their own way of doing things? Their power? Their influence? Their position in society? It's a good thing we would never do this. Or would we? Hmm? <laughs> well, they were chasing Baal. We wouldn't do that, though, would we? We wouldn't sacrifice. No, we wouldn't do that. We read the scriptures. Go back to the, read the entire Old Testament. Do that this afternoon. God brought the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And what did he do? Miraculous sign, 
miraculous sign, miraculous sign, miraculous sign, miraculous sign, ad nauseum. And what did the people do? Golden calf, complain, murmur, complain, chase after pagan gods. Guess what? And women, we won't go there. Guess what? God can do all the signs that he is capable of doing. And guess what? He can do any sign that he wants. But there is no indication in the scripture that signs will change the human heart. What changes the human heart is the grace of God moving in our lives. And Jesus looks at them and says, you want another sign? I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give you one sign, and that is the sign of Jonah. This is elaborated on in chapter 12. If you remember, we talked about it there. Jesus said, Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days. The son of man, me, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days, and then I'm going to come out. He's talking about the resurrection. This is one of those statements in Scripture that at the time was kind of like, what do you think he meant by that? On this side of the resurrection, it's very clear what he meant by that. That was going to be the final sign that he was going to give to the nation of Israel. He tells them, I'm not going to mess with any more signs. When the disciples, so he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. You know, there's a few conversations in the Bible that I just think are as funny as they could possibly be because they're just so stupid. One of my favorites has always been when Joseph's brothers show up in Egypt. I've told you this before, right? And they're talking among themselves, and they're worried, since they don't know who Joseph is, all they know is he's the number two guy to Pharaoh, they're worried that he's going to steal their donkeys. <laughs> Joseph is the number two guy in Egypt and they're worried he's going to steal their donkeys. Jesus makes a comment about the Pharisees and leaven, and the disciples go, it's because we didn't bring any bread. He's ticked off at us because we didn't bring any bread. You know, they just ended up with seven baskets full left over. And they get in the boat and they forget to bring the basket. And they're going, shoot, what are we going to do for dinner? Think about this for a moment. This guy just fed 4,000 men plus women and children on nothing. And they're worried. Oh, we forgot to bring the bread. He's going to be mad at us. More about that in just a second. <laughs> but what did he really tell them? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is leaven? Yeast? 
You put it in things, it causes them to rise. You put a little bit in, you mix it in the warm water, and it permeates everything. In the scripture, generally, but not always, generally, leaven is used to, as an example of the way that sin permeates all of your life. We've talked about this. We actually talked about it several weeks ago when we talked about Herod killing John the Baptist. You start with one little sin and another little sin and another little sin and then a not-so-little sin and a big sin and a big sin and you're chopping people's heads off. It's a good thing we wouldn't do that, right? We start with a little lie and we end up with a bigger lie and we begin, we begin to cover up that lie and we do this and we do that and the leaven, it just permeates everything in our lives. So we know that as an example of sin, but what is it about the Pharisees and the Sadducees that is permeating our lives? Well, let's look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, they believe something. <laughs> My contention is, is that deep inside of each of us, there's a Pharisee just waiting to get out. And some of us don't do a very good job of stopping that. You know, I come up to one of you. I won't point out one of you, but I, you know who you are. And I just know that I'm better than you are. Because I kept a list of rules that you couldn't possibly have kept. You've really messed up your life because you didn't keep rule 42. <laughs> Deep inside each of us is a Pharisee just waiting to come out. Instead of a Canaanite woman recognizing that she has no resources at all and all she can do is come to Jesus and beg for mercy. That's all she can do. She had no list. She was at the end of everything that she had. All she could do was come to Jesus. And guess what? If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, it's not because we ever kept any list. In fact, the list is standing between you and Jesus. But deep inside of each of us, there's a Pharisee just wanting to get out. I would also contend that deep inside of each of us is a Sadducee, someone who likes their position and is worried that if I really do what God wants me to do, I'm going to lose my position. If, if I really have to be a true disciple, I mean, we can fast forward, right? These disciples are all going to die for following Jesus. We can have a discussion about John. These disciples are going to die for following Jesus. Well, I wouldn't want that. The Sadducee inside of me says, I've got to cover my basis. I've got to fit into society. I've got to do whatever it takes. Compromise. So there's a little bit of Pharisee. There's a little bit of Sadducee. And if we don't watch it, they will permeate all of our lives.
That's just a fact. That is just a fact. What do we do about it? We pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us our inward Pharisee and our inward Sadducee. That's what he was warning them about. What are they worried about? We don't have any bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith. Canaanite woman, great faith, large faith. Disciples, O ye of little faith. Now it is interesting. Jesus has revealed truth to the disciples, and they should have had more faith, but they didn't. O ye of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Why are you worried about that? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is it that we're worried about? What's for lunch? Maybe not you. Maybe not right now, but you're thinking about it. What's for lunch? What's for dinner? We have our minds focused on earthly things. Or maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me who worries what we're having for lunch. But I know, because I'm going to cook it. <laughs> How is it that you fail to understand? How is it that you fail to understand? Five thousand people, men plus women and children. Four thousand men plus women and children. Miraculous feeding. And you don't think that God can take care of your needs for food. That's what he's telling them. Don't you understand? I can feed you anytime I want to. But that's not what, what is important. What is important is that you not become like the Pharisees and you not become like the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They finally got it. The light bulb went off. He's not talking about bread. And they said, and he said, yes. Next week, we're moving into one of the most important passages in the entire book. So we're not going to start it. We're just going to stop right here. What is the lesson of all of this? Jesus is already beginning to demonstrate to the disciples, to the disciples, that there's going to be a blessing to the Gentile community. We saw this in the Old Testament. We saw the promise to Abraham, through your seed, all the world is going to be blessed. But a good Jewish man would not have believed that. But he's beginning to teach them. See this Canaanite woman? I met her need. 
See all these sick people in the Gentile community? I met their need. See their physical needs? I met those needs. See these Jewish religious leaders? Don't be like them. Now, we need to make sure we understand. We're not talking about Jewish religious leaders. We are talking about them. At this historical point in time, we're talking about a group that were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what we're talking about are us today. Jesus is looking to us and saying, beware of this kind of teaching. We could write books, 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 about the teachings of today's Pharisees and today's Sadducees. What does he tell us? Don't go down that path. That path does not demonstrate faith. What it demonstrates is a lack of understanding of what is going on in the world right now. So, what is going on in the world right now? In the biblical time, the Messiah has come. And the religious leaders don't even see it. What is happening in the world today? The Messiah has come. And we need to recognize him. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace upon us. Thank you that you did reach out to the Gentile community so that we too could be members of your body. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.